This morning is uh, April 4th. It's Sunday. This is Palm Sunday. And we are not covering the Palm Sunday message. I teach those themes an awful lot. The basic message in Palm Sunday is that Jesus was hailed the king. And when they hailed him a king, they also called him a son of David. They cried out, Hosanna, Lord save us. They did these things because they believed that this was the fulfillment of what God had spoken to David. That there would be a son who would sit on the throne of Israel forever. They were looking forward to this son who would come and who would overthrow all of Israel's enemies and that would cause Israel to rule the nations. This happened in some sense in Solomon's day. A son of David who overthrew the rule of the people that were around him. He instituted the golden era in Israel, built a permanent dwelling. That was a shadow and a type to the son of David, Jesus, who will show up, overthrow the enemies, institute a golden era where there is no war, the millennial reign, and build a permanent dwelling for God's people, the glorified body. These people were crying out for that. That's what they wanted. And they hailed Jesus a king, and they worshipped him because of it. But when it was clear that he was not going to overthrow the Romans, they turned on him. And that's this week we are finishing the book of Matthew. We started Matthew some time ago, and we are in the 26th chapter now. We've just done the 25th. Sunday or Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, we'll, we will be in the 27th chapter. The reason I'm doing that is he was crucified in the 27th chapter, and Wednesday would, would be the day of the week that he was crucified on, and we'll cover that. And everybody in here has been taught that it was not the quote-unquote Good Friday because that's not three days and three nights. It was Wednesday, and we'll look at why that is in the Scripture. Then Sunday will be in Matthew 28, which is the resurrection. And by this time next week, we will have completed the book of Matthew, and we'll be praying for new direction for our Wednesday services. Um, We're covering a lot of ground in this church. We're moving, you know. It was foundational to me in Matthew 25, the opening up of the parables in Matthew, that these parables deal with the people of the kingdom. They're not dealing with the people of the kingdom versus the people of the world. I hope that was as foundational to you all as it was me. Uh, I don't think my understanding of any of the parables will ever be the same. We've had some similar events this week. There have been two things that have plagued me for a long time about not being able to sort out certain things in the Word. One is that John records the crucifixion time of Jesus differently than Matthew and Mark do, and Luke. And uh, I've tried to work that out for years and never have. This principle we keep teaching of Scripture in light of Scripture worked it out for us. And we, Matthew and I have gone from the beginning of John all the way through the end, and it's no longer a theory. Now I know it is correct because it holds up in every instance. When Jesus unlocks a puzzle to you, all of a sudden the pieces all fit perfectly. If I don't get to that today, and I hope to, I'll cover that Wednesday and what that is. In Matthew 26, though, Jesus is anointed by a woman. All the commentators say that this is two separate women. And that Matthew and Mark record this as a woman two days before Passover, while John records this as a woman uh, six days before Passover. And that they have to be two different women for that reason. And uh, I'm happy to say that is not the case. There are two women that anointed Jesus. One three years before, recorded in Luke 7. And one 
somewhere between six days and two days before the Passover, and I, I think probably five days before the Passover. And it was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And uh, we will cover some of that now. Starting Matthew 26, 1. This morning's going to be more of a teaching than a preaching, and we have an awful lot to cover to get through the 26th chapter today, but I'm going to do my best with it. It says, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, and remember the things that he's just finished saying was the parable of the virgins, the parable of the talents, the parable of the sheep and goats, scathing parables about those who've been entrusted with the things of God and the fact that you have to handle them well, or you'll be declared a goat, or a foolish virgin, or a wicked and lazy servant. As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Told them pretty plainly, didn't he? From context, when is he going to be handed over to be crucified? On the Passover, right? Jesus made every effort to identify himself with the Passover lamb. That's never any more clear than in the book of John. In the early chapters, John the Baptist cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. Jesus was referred to as the Lamb throughout so that people would realize that this innocent animal that was slaughtered and their blood put on the doorpost so that the death angel would pass over and the Israelites could find life, Our God wanted to identify Jesus with that message. He is the innocent one that was slaughtered, his blood placed on us that we might pass from death to life. Picking up in verse 3. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. The priests are plotting to kill Jesus. Passover's coming up in just a couple days. They want to have him arrested and kill him if possible before the Passover. And they, they want to do that because they don't want the people to riot. You heard that? Verse 6 says, While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, Mark 14 says that very same thing. While Jesus was in Bethany. If you turn to John 12 with me real quick, quickly. Twelve one. Six days before the Passover... Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with fragrance of perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth about a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always 
hath me. If you flip back to Matthew, the basic problem that most people have had with this is that John says it was six days before the Passover, and Matthew says it's two days before the Passover. The answer to that, just so that you'll have this straight in your mind if you want to make some notes, is Matthew 26.1, Jesus says these things. As you know, it's two days before the Passover. And the note is, and the uh, Pharisees wanted to kill him. They wanted to arrest him and kill him. That was going on. They were scheming two days before the Passover. Verse 6 says, While Jesus was in Bethany, the home of a man named Simon the leper. We are referring back to a previous incident. We're referring back to before he was in Jerusalem, when he was in Bethany. Does anybody know why that might be, though? What happened right after this woman, or what happened during the time this woman anointed Jesus? Who objected? Now, how did those chief priests and Pharisees end up arresting Jesus? With the help of Judas. See, what is going on is John keeps the chronology. He says, hey, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived in Bethany. He said, Bethany was the hometown of Lazarus. And while they were eating in a man's house, all right, the house was the same Simon the leper. The town was the same town that Lazarus was in. They were not in the home of Lazarus. It was six days before the Passover when Jesus arrived in Bethany. At some point after that, he was having dinner in a man named Simon the leper's house. The reason Matthew and Mark both start off telling you that it's two days before the Passover, they want to kill Jesus before the Passover, then they refer back to this event in Bethany, is this is the turning point in Judas' life. Judas has been pulled at by Satan, and Peter has been pulled at by Satan for that matter. You remember, Jesus tells him, Satan desires to sift you, but I've, I've prayed for you, that afterwards you, you may return. Well, you can see Satan pulling at Peter throughout the Gospels. Uh, stand behind me, Satan, for you always have in mind the things of men, Jesus told Peter. But he was also apparently working on Judas, and Judas is the one that yielded to him. And listen to this. Why? Over an offense. The triggering event was Judas was mad. He didn't think Jesus was handling the money right. Didn't respect his opinion. Didn't see Jesus' authority. This combined with the disappointment that Jesus was not overthrowing the Romans and maybe even a desire to force Jesus' hands into overthrowing the Romans, Judas had his will instead of God's will. And that's something we're going to talk about a lot this morning. So in, in Mark 14 and in Matthew 26, if you make a note above verse 6 that says he's referring back to an earlier event, it makes perfect sense with John. That also makes the chronology flow perfectly. Now, there is another anointing by a sinful woman mentioned in Luke. It's mentioned in Luke 7. It does not flow with any of these events. These events, whether even if you don't read it like I do, one would be two days before the Passover, the other would be six days before the Passover. Both of them would have occurred by a woman who used very expensive perfume. In fact, it would have been made of pure nard and carried in an alabaster jar. Both of them would have had Jesus saying the same thing, and both of them would have had the disciples being upset and repeating the same words. That seems inconceivable to me. So I see that these are the same exact event. But the one in Luke is entirely different. The words that are spoken are different. The actions of the woman are different. 
It's not said to be pure nard. It's just said to be perfume. And also, it is three years before the Passover. So what you have basically is that three years before the Passover, a woman who was sinful, who had led a sinful life, learned Jesus was in her town. She came, fell at his feet, cried, wept, washed his feet with her tears and perfume. Jesus was in the home of another man named Simon. This is where the confusion comes in. But the writer clarifies, says, this guy was Simon the Pharisee, not Simon the leper. A leper couldn't be a Pharisee. And, and see, the writer adds Simon the Pharisee so that you know, so that you didn't confuse the events. Why might you have confused the events? One, they were similar. And also, John 11 says of Mary, says, Jesus was on his way to Mary and Martha's house, right? This same Mary who had anointed Jesus' feet. See, Jesus says, as we go on here, that what she did was a beautiful thing, and wherever the gospel was told, what she did would be told. And it had been. These gospels were written some 30 years after Jesus' life. Well, these events had been told to everyone. So it was necessary to distinguish the two houses, to distinguish the times. When Luke's writing, he says, this one happened in the house of Simon the Pharisee. When Matthew and Mark are writing, they say, this one happened in the house of Simon the leper. Because those are two absolutely opposite things. If he said it was just in the house of Simon, you might get confused about who we were talking about. But since he said one was a Pharisee and one was a leper, there's no way to get confused. Because those two cannot be the same thing. You following me so far? Okay. All that may not mean very much to you, but if you ever are, are placed in a position where your faith is attacked based on what looks like an inconsistency in the Scripture, this kind of stuff means a lot for you. I promise whenever the Scripture seems to contradict, whenever there is something that looks like uh, it doesn't line up, give yourself some time because eventually it will be unlocked. It's taken me several years to figure this and John out. And it's not because it's complicated. It's really not. It's just that it takes a while sometimes for it to occur to you. He traps his knowledge from the wise and he reveals it to the humble of heart. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. I find some comfort in that if I might digress for just a minute. What could possibly be comforting by saying you'll always have the poor, but you won't always have Jesus? That's, that's a, a noteworthy point. You know what's comforting to me about it? There are a lot of problems that, folks, we simply won't solve. I got one right down the street here. Despite my very best efforts in the Lord, there's a guy down the street that is still not free from crack. There are some problems that it's not within your ability nor is it God's desire for you to solve. Jesus said there will always be the poor. It is not Christianity's job to wipe out poverty. That's not our job. It's our job to help the individual poor person that God tells us to one at a time. 
But it's not our job to wipe out poverty. In fact, Jesus said there'll always be the poor. It lets me know that some problems are going to exist till His come, till He comes. In fact, some have to get worse. I don't have to solve everyone's problems, and neither do you. You need to be sympathetic. You need to be prayerful. You need to be looking for the opportunity that God might speak to you to help. But it's not automatically your obligation. You know, I, I assure you, there were many poor people in Jesus' day that He didn't go find, seek them out, and give them money. Now, you see, He helped many people, fed 5,000 at one time. You know, but that's 5,000 out of a nation of how many? Yeah, I mean, think about it. See, our obligation is to do exactly what Jesus tells us to do. That very well may include benevolence in somebody's life. But guys, our obligation is not to save the whole world. That's Jesus through many members, not through you, the one mercenary God has hired. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. That ought to free you from a great weight. Because when you drive around this city, there's more poor people than you could possibly feed, I promise. Now, that also does not alleviate your responsibility to hear from God and do what He tells you to do regarding the poor or any other problem. But it burdened me forever to go to a hospital and see all the sick people, and we weren't healing them. What's wrong with the church? There's always going to be sick people. It's the special few that God desires to do a miracle to show His kingdom power in their life. And I don't know why. It's not the point. It's just my job that when He speaks to me about it, to be obedient regardless of the consequence. It took Him 38 years for the blind man and John to get healed. That was a day of divine appointment. If the apostles had run into Him two years before, it was not the day of divine appointment. Does that mean if you're the blind guy, you shouldn't be praying? No, you should be crying out. Perhaps that's what made the day a few years later His day of divine appointment. I don't know. You pray till you get what you're after and you move when God says move. Back to the message though. Verse 12. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Now why would Jesus say that? Because in just a few days, this event's actually happening in Bethany on the sixth or fifth day before Passover. In a few days, he knows he's making the triumphal entry as the Lamb of God on the 10th of Nisan, to be examined by the people and then killed. She knows that too. You know why she knows that? Because this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And she just watched Jesus, the resurrection and the life, raise her brother from the dead. She knew he was the Christ. She was, if she was not born again before then, she's born again now. She believes every word that came out of his mouth. And she had heard him speak of being lifted up that he might draw all men to him, indicating the kind of death he would die. She had heard those things, and she believed him. While the apostles were still sitting there trying to figure out how the kingdom of God was going to come and overthrow the Romans, she knew he was going to die. And she had this very expensive jar of perfume, this pure nard that was used for embalming. And she had been saving it. And she brought it, and she anointed Jesus with it. Not as king. I mean, as an act of love and devotion, but she anointed him, realizing she may not have another chance to take care of him. He's going to die. She recognized it before anybody else seemed to. While one's planning to go out and kill him, another is there worshiping him, loving on him, anointing him for burial because he's going to die. There's the gospel. 
Jesus' words will always bring that reaction. In one, it will cause loving, sincere devotion where you'll give the very best you have. In the other, it will cause a desire to kill. The Gospel's designed to produce a hot or cold response. It's never designed to produce complacency. It's why Elijah stood before a mountain and he said, O Israel, how long will you waver between two opinions? If God's God, serve Him. If Baal's God, serve Him. Get hot or cold, but for God's sake, do not stand in the middle. Everybody wants to know, well, what's wrong with the American church? Why is it so apathetic? Why is it so weak? Why don't we see the miracles? Why is all they preach, bless me, bless me, bless me? Why is the denominational churches like social clubs? You know, you might as well be joining Club Met or the Old Folks Association or, or whatever it is. You could be at a country club. The reason is because they're neither hot nor cold. They're not bad people, and that's what they justify themselves by. They're not wicked. They're not out trying to work against the kingdom of God. They're not cold in that regard. But neither are they hot, out a burning flame for Jesus, telling everybody they meet about Jesus, living for every moment for Jesus. Instead, they find themselves comfortably in the middle, having compromised with both sides. Yes, we believe Jesus is real, but no, we think this is a matter that we could keep to ourselves. Religion's a private matter. You can, you can love Jesus, just don't go being a fanatic. I was told all of these things. That's not, the, that's not the design of the Gospel. It's to produce either a Judas or a Mary, the sister of Lazarus. God wants none that are in between because He wants there to be a clear dividing line. He wants it, he wants it plain to everyone which side you're on so that nobody's confused. People ought not be able to look at your life and wonder. They ought to either see a Roman candle for Jesus or an iceberg. One or the other. Make it plain by your actions what you're about. You know, the worst thing you can do in sales is be so vague and ambiguous that you don't answer questions. You don't give them clear-cut choices. What does that usually imply when somebody's vague and doesn't answer your questions directly? Deception. So what does it... What does it imply in a supposed Christian's life when there's vague ambiguities, when they're neither hot nor cold? It implies deception. They've been deceived. I sat at a dinner table the other night. We heard it. We heard, oh, well, we like the kind of Christians that just wear the dove around their neck but don't ever say anything. Well, I bet you do. Because it's not. it doesn't move you to hot or cold. I said, well... You know, those other Christians, they just made me feel bad. They talked bad about me. They said that my smoking was bad and all. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. That was wrong. They don't represent real Christianity. But at least they're, they're being vocal about what they believe, even if they're wrong. You know, where does this cowardice come from that we're all afflicted with? Where we're scared to speak up as if we're ashamed. This woman came and poured out the very best she had. And Jesus said in verse 13, I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus was a prophet and he was awesome. And you know what? His words were fulfilled. So much so that when John is writing in John 11, and I would turn there, but we're going to run out of time this morning. I know it. In John 11, as, Jesus inter- or as John introduces 
Lazarus' family, he says, this is the same Mary who poured the oil on Jesus and anointed him. That's because every reader that this gospel went out to and John was written to the whole world had heard about that event. These things were not done in a corner. They were not hidden. They were done for the world to see. Jesus was killed in the most public place ever. At the highest day of the year when all the Jews would be there. And in an area dominated by Romans who ruled the world and had built roads all over the world so that these events in the crossroads of the Middle East, the center of the world power at the time, would spread throughout the world. And they did. So that 30 years later, when John's being written, or 35 years, or whatever you think it was, 28 years, I mean, we could argue about that, some time period later, when he's writing, he can identify her by the story. It'd be like talking about George. Yeah, I'm talking about George Washington. You say, well, which George Washington? The same George Washington that was President of the United States. Everybody in the United States knows that. It's common knowledge. Well, Jesus said it would be told, and it was. Well, why this allusion back to Bethany? If we're talking, and it's two days before the Passover, and we say, and the chief priests and Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus, why on earth are we reverting then back to six days before the Passover? Because, verse 14 says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out thirty silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Six days before the Passover, or five days, somewhere in there, Judas decides he's going to hand him over. He's looking for the opportunity. Then two days before the Passover, Jesus says, Hey, it's two days before the Passover. I'm fixing to be crucified. Then Matthew tells the story about how Judas decided to do it, that he did decide to do it. And then in verse 17, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for the, to eat the Passover? This is Tuesday. It's Tuesday sometime during daylight hours. And they are preparing to eat the Passover feast, which would normally be done Wednesday at 6. And I'll cover that chronology with y'all more this Wednesday. He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover. They went and found a certain man. Here, I have a question for you. This guy had not been told that Jesus was going to be there. He had not, nobody sent a letter. Nobody paid him in advance. Nobody rented the room. But there was a certain man that somehow knew so that when the apostles showed up, they went ahead and did it. Are you willing to be that certain man? Are you willing to be the Ananias that hears from God and goes and seeks out Saul, even though he had been killing the church? Are you willing to be the guy that heard from God that the master was going to come and need his house, and so you already have it set aside? See, God has got to appoint certain men and women for task. And you know what? He reveals it by His Spirit long before you ever see the natural invitation. How about Peter? Peter's on the roof. He knows before the people even show up that somebody's coming to get him because he's got to go to a Gentile's house. And those men left Cornelius' house to go to Peter without ever having talked to Peter because they had been told that Peter had a dream. 
See, God has to have certain people who are listening saying, Lord, what is it you want me to do today? What is it you would have of me? So that when the opportunity presents itself, you are ready to act. It's not the first you've heard of it. You are seeking God saying, how can I use my house for you? I bet this certain man had been praying for a way to participate in the kingdom of God. And he had the honor of in his house, the real Passover occurred. The Passover that actually causes you to pass from death to life. The commemoration of the Passover that brings us into a new kingdom. It happened in his house because he was that certain man. You need to be willing to be the certain man. That when you get the opportunity, you're obedient. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl will betray me. Now, it's clear from reading the other Gospels, and I I sure don't have time to teach all this today, but we'll teach it through the years, that because they were reclining on their sides, in Jews 8, leaning on their left elbow, laying out almost prostrate, but on a side, eating with their right hand, that Jesus was reclining on John, and Judas was in the place of honor at his right. The reason we know Judas was in his place of honor at the right is because That place is the one who gets to dip his bread into the gravy on the master's plate. It's called the sup. I have no idea why it's a Jewish custom. It was the place of honor. And the other disciples that were saying, hey, who is it? Who is it? And and you always wonder, why didn't they know if Jesus said it's the one who dips in here? And some thought Judas went out to buy bread and, and others didn't know. And how is that? It's because Peter, one of the other gospels says, motioned to John. Ask him, is it me? And Jesus leans back and tells John, no, it's the one who I'm dipping, who dips his bread in my plate. So John knew. And then Judas, Jesus leans over and says something to, what you do, go do quickly. And he gets up and leaves and all the other guys are going, maybe send him out to buy bread. I saw him whispering over there. You know, an understanding of their customs really does help. Yo, the reason I'm going to Israel is because I want to know more about this thing that we study. I will, I will teach on that in depth and give you guys a total breakdown of every verse that I just covered. I just can't do it today. There, there's not enough time. And it's not all in Matthew. It really requires a comprehensive look of all four Gospels. The Son of Man will go just as it was written about Him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man... It would be better for him if he had not been born. Wow. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Y'all, there were pieces of bread on the Jewish Passover table. And each bread represented something special. And one of them was torn, folded in a napkin, and hidden on a place of the table. I can't remember the name of it at the moment, but it's almost like a dessert. It was the sweetest and most pure. And after a long period of time in the meal, then it was taken out and eaten. 
The same way that Jesus' body was torn before everybody, tucked in a grave, and then later taken out as something beautiful and sweet. See, everything in the meal typified Christ. Well, this cup. Then they took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my, this is the, I'm sorry, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What was the cup for? Y'all tell me, the forgiveness of sins. The cup Jesus picked up was for the forgiveness of sins. Redemption, right? It's for the redeeming. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Eric, why on earth are you talking about which cup it is? Because in the Jewish Passover, there were four cups that were uh, consumed. Matthew's writing to a Jewish people. They know that. He says, he picked up the cup and said, this one, for the forgiveness of sins, I'm making a new covenant with you. That's because in Exodus 6, y'all can turn there. I need a podium. I didn't say a modium, I said podium. In Exodus 6, starting in verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. That statement the Jews commemorated in their Passover feast by four cups of wine. The first cup was the bringing out of Egypt. This was being delivered. The second cup was being freed from slavery. The third cup, mentioned here in the Scripture, Exodus 6-7, is for redeeming. I will redeem you. What was the fourth thing then? What was the fourth statement in Exodus 6-7? And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Jesus goes through the first cup. He's bringing them out. He goes to the second cup. I'm freeing you from slavery. He picks up the third cup and says, And this cup, I'm redeeming you with, because it's my blood. I am the Passover lamb. That's what he's saying. Then he says, in the fourth cup, we will not drink again until we do it anew in the kingdom. Why? What did the fourth cup represent? Taking you to be with him and him being your God in the kingdom of his father. That's why he said he wouldn't drink it until they drank it in the kingdom of God. Right now, guys, here's where we are in the stage of things. We're at the third cup. I'm redeeming you today. But we will drink this fourth cup. And we will do it anew in the kingdom of God. Turn with me to Isaiah 25. 25. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all the peoples. A banquet of aged wine. Incidentally, why do you age wine? That's just to make good grape juice, right? Mm. And who prepares this? The Lord. So the Lord prepares a feast with what kind of wine? But I'm sure the Baptists are right. You know? I'm sure they are. 
They must be, right? There's so many of them. Yeah. They aged the wine, then they must have boiled it or something to get the alcohol out. Guys, we need to be honest. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers the nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. This feast is when we drink that fourth cup together. When we are glorified. He has taken us to be with Him. He is our God and we are glorified like Him. Death is no longer a part of us because we have passed from death to life. It's said to be the case now figuratively. It will be the case naturally. How do we know that? Because Jesus was killed on Wednesday and Sunday morning when they got to the grave as the first of us to raise from the dead. He's the first fruit. Proving there's more where that came from in the fields. Y'all with me? Okay. Turn back to Matthew. I know I am covering a tremendous amount of stuff. It's okay. We'll teach on it through the years in many different ways. I'm just giving you the overview. This is uh, still Matthew 26. It says, drink from it, all of you. This is, my, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins or the redemption. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That's the, idea, that's the day Isaiah spoke of. Incidentally, what does John record Jesus' first miracle as? Water into wine. And what kind of wine was it? The best wine. Now, in Isaiah, he said aged wine, the finest of meats and the finest of wines. Incidentally, why do you think Jesus might have chosen to do that and do it at a wedding banquet? Why might his mother have thought he should do something? Because they knew that this guy was going to destroy the power of death. At least that was the hope. She saw a wedding. She saw her son there who had been newly ordained into ministry. They all heard the voice from the cloud. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. They heard John the Baptist's testimony about him. And there they are. And there is no wine. Maybe she thought she was helping him to fulfill Isaiah. What did he tell her? Woman, what have I to do with you? You know, I mean, it was not the time. But the time will come. Jesus told them at the Passover, we're going to drink this fruit of the vine again anew in my kingdom. And that's when I'll take you to be with me. Is how they understood that. So when will Jesus take us to be with Him? When the kingdom is set up. Doesn't that flow perfectly with what I teach in Matthew 24? Not seven years before, not three and a half years before, not when things get hard or the American church gets scared. We drink of that cup when He takes us to be with Him anew in the kingdom of God which is on earth, not on a cloud somewhere with a fat naked baby cherub. You know, that is ridiculous fairy tales that people have told in the American church, but it is not true. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This book I read the day I was born again. I got born again, and that night I sat down and read the book of Matthew. I've read the book of Matthew I don't know how many times over the last 11 or so years. And I've never noticed that. Not only did they have the Passover, but they worshipped. They sang hymns. 
They worshipped. Jesus worshipped while He was on earth. The Son of God worshipped the Father to teach them how. Now, they sang a hymn. I'm sure they sang one of the Psalms. And when I'm in Israel, I'll ask, because I know that they had a progression of Psalms. They sang on the way up to the Passover, during the Passover, and on the way down. I'll find out what it is. I think it's Psalm 118, but I don't know. But they worshipped. We need to be willing to pour out our best for Jesus. We need to be the kind of people that the Gospel produces either a cold Judas reaction or a warm Mary, the sister of Lazarus reaction. We need to be like the certain man in the town. We've heard from God ahead of time so that when the opportunity presents itself, we're ready. We need to be waiting to be taken with Jesus anew in the kingdom. We need to be worshipful and waiting. Verse 31. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of Me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Everybody says it. We will not disown you. And yet we all find ourselves in positions when we have done that very thing. Before He rose, before they understood the plan, before they were filled with God's Spirit, you should have greater mercy for them. They were weak. Guys, we've been equipped in every way that they had not yet been equipped in. After Jesus rose, they repented. When we are tempted to disown Him, He should rise within our hearts because He's already risen. And we should repent right then and do whatever it is He's told us to do. The next thing that happens is He goes to Gethsemane. I'm sure trying to finish this. I hope we can. He goes to Gethsemane. I've been to Gethsemane. Do you know what it means? It means the place of the olive press. I want you to think about that. Like the four cups custom, all Jews were familiar with the pressing of olives. When you made anointing oil for the temple of God, the olives were stacked on top of each other in their own weight. Actually, no artificial weight. Their own weight caused the olive oil to come out. This was to symbolize it's not the work of any man. It's God's own anointing. But when you pressed olives, the first pressing was called virgin olive oil. The first time these olives had ever been pressed. The second pressing produced a less pure olive oil. The third pressing yet another grade of olive oil. They were pressed at least three times. The first one for the purest of substances. Human consumption, uh, anointing oil, those kind of things. The second, burning a fuel for things. The third might just be fire starter, chaff. Jesus is in a place called the olive press where there's at least three pressings. Then Jesus went out, went with His disciples to a place called Gethsemane and He said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. 
He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus is being pressed. He feels as if his soul is being overwhelmed. Because this is the hour when darkness must rule, the Bible says. This is the time period where he prayed so earnestly, he was pressed so hard, he sweat as if it were drops of blood. He was being pressed by all of the pressures of the world. We're often pressed. When he was squeezed, let's look and see what came out of him. And then you think about when you're squeezed, what comes out of you. When somebody presses you, do you revert back to that old carnal life? Do you give them some of that language that you learned when you were in the world? Do you do what we called in the world, bow up to people and want to fight when you're pressed? Or when you're squeezed, do you say, nevertheless, your will be done, Father? Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. Don't think Jesus is being dramatic here or overly emotional. He fell because his very body wanted to give way under the pressure of what he was fixing to face. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you. Lord, if possible, I would like not to be abused in this way. But I want your will more than mine. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went out a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. He was in a place of the olive press, and he was being pressed. And what came out of him was a pure desire to do the will of God. When he was squeezed, there was no alternate motivations. There was no alternate human will. This self-preservation that says, but God doesn't want me destitute. But God doesn't want me to do this. Or God would never want me to suffer. Or God would never have my kids do that. Or God would never... Instead, when he was squeezed and felt as if he was going to die, he said, I'd rather not have to do this. But nevertheless, your will be done. In John, he says, the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father. That I do exactly what the Father commands. That's what the world should be learning from our lives. That when we are pressed, when we're squeezed by the pressures of life, what comes out is a desire to do the Father's will. That's how they'll know you love the Lord. That's how they'll know the devil does not have mastery over you. When you are squeezed. They don't know you're Christians when you're blessed. Everybody's godly when they're blessed. Everybody's happy when they're blessed. They know you're a Christian when you are squeezed. When you're squeezed to the point where you feel as if you're going to die. 
and what comes out of you is the will of God, then they know they've seen a man of God. Then they know they've seen a woman of God. Then they're willing to listen because they've seen it. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, Do not believe me unless I do the work of my Father. In our lifetime, we say the exact opposite. Don't believe what you see. Believe what I say. Jesus was the opposite. He encouraged them, don't believe me if you don't see me doing it. We want everybody to believe us even though they don't see us doing it. That's wrong. We avoid every olive press at every turn. We hide from them. We run. We proclaim it can't be God. God would never. And the truth is, God has to. Which of His apostles did not get in the olive press? He said, well, John didn't die. Yeah, he's boiled in oil and it didn't kill him. He was on a prison island making idols while he's writing the book of Revelation. There is not one man of God, not one, who ever did anything for God and was not pressed greatly. Most of them spent their lives avoiding being killed by people so that they could get the gospel out. But we think, oh, Jesus just wants us fat, happy, and blessed. Guys, you need to look forward to the olive press. It's the opportunity for the world to see what's in you. And if you're being squeezed and you don't like what comes out, it's okay. Jesus is able to make you a virgin again. Spiritually, I'm speaking now. He can make what comes out of you pure. And even if it's not pure, it's useful for something. It may not be fit for human consumption, but it'll burn a candle for God. It'll light a fire somewhere. It all had its purpose. There are times I've got it right, and many more times I haven't. But the bottom line is if you avoid the press, they never get to see what's in you. We used to sing the songs and all, what's on the inside working on the outside. They don't get to see what's on the inside working on the outside if you're not being squeezed. Those olives were squeezed to the point where their skin burst open and what was in them came out. Jesus was too. Now, when he said that he was our teacher and they did this to him and we were the students, I wonder what he meant by that. If he said they do this while the tree is still green, what will they do when it's withered? If he said no man is greater than his his teacher, I wonder what he meant by that. Surely the church is just supposed to be blessed, right? Right. If they did it to him, they will do it to you if you're his follower. You want to find people that don't really love Jesus? Find the people that are not persecuted. They're cold. They're in the middle. They've compromised with both sides. The Bible makes a plain statement. You can read it in Peter. You can read it in a lot of places. Anyone who wants to live a godly life will suffer. Now, every time you say that to an American, they say, we suffer in all kinds of ways. I'm sorry. Suffering in the biblical context, how? What, you... You lost your remote. That was suffering. You had to go a week without color television. No, not even that. It was just a loss of cable for a day. Boy, what a suffer. Because you were godly and you didn't cuss out that person so they, they didn't come fix it that day. That's how we think we suffer. No, you need to be squeezed. Here recently, we found a little financial squeeze. People took almost $1,000 out of our account that didn't belong to them. Tried to take $1,100 four times. That doesn't belong to them. My wife was so tempted to give this woman a piece of her mind. 
She said she was fighting the word from coming off of her lips. The thoughts began to roll around her mind that perhaps this woman was not very intelligent. But she wanted to express that in a little different way. Might even have wanted to call her a dumb animal of some sort or another. And she didn't. She bit her tongue and she said what her spirit told her to say, which is, it's okay. Everybody makes mistakes. She showed mercy. And you know what the woman said? I'm so happy to hear you say that. I've been booking these trips for Christians for years. The way she said it leads you to believe she's not a Christian. I've been booking this trip for Christians for years. And they are usually the worst if something goes wrong. She said it is amazing how quickly they get belligerent. Now, if you put that in context of sheep and goats, wise and foolish virgins, parable of the talents, the kingdom net, good and bad fish, all those things, make you wonder whether or not she's been running into real Christians. Maybe she just caught them on a bad day. But if she caught them on a bad year or decade, hmm. Jesus was pressed. When you're pressed, I hope what comes out of you is godly. I really should stop here, but we're not going to. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him. I'm sorry, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once, Jesus, to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. Greetings, great one. Greetings, teacher. And kissed him. Have you noticed that Judas betrayed Jesus with kind words? He didn't say he wasn't Lord. He didn't say he wasn't Rabbi. He didn't deny. Who, he didn't say hateful things. He kissed him while he betrayed him. And that's the same way most people betray him. Oh, yeah, we believe Jesus is Lord. But their actions show that he's not. We betray him with a kiss. Very few people will you find that say, no, Jesus was a bad guy. You know? Even if they say heretical things about him, like the Mormon church says that he slept with Mary Magdalene, okay? They say heretical, horrendous things about him. What else do they say? Oh, he's a good man. He was a prophet. He's the savior of the world. One of many saviors of many worlds or, or whatever. Nobody's willing to just say something negative. They betray him with a kiss. We need to not be like that. Jesus replied, friend... Do what you came for. Did Jesus hate Judas? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Judas was a weak vessel who yielded to something. He'll pay the price for that. But Jesus considered Judas his friend. It was Satan who entered him, Luke said, that was the enemy. When people betray you, when they're ugly to you, when they do things that are wrong, you need to learn to look at them as friends and hate, hate the power that is working in them. But love them. That's how you love a sinner. And hate the sin. Excuse me. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions, we know this is Peter, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. That's Malchus. Peter cut off Malchus' ear. Incidentally, the other thing that's happened is when they come to arrest him, they said, you know, uh, who are you looking for? He said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I'm he. They all fell down. Then they got up, they came in, and Peter draws a sword, cuts off Malchus' ear. Jesus picks up the ear, puts it back on Malchus. 
despite every evidence of love, despite every working of a miracle, despite only kind words, they still wanted to kill him because darkness doesn't like light. I bet Malchus didn't participate in it, though. Put back your sword, or put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. There is this justification in the word that people try to use. Abraham had 318 trained men. Joshua was no no pansy. You know, he went and he fought. Um, Jesus told them, do you have a sword? And they said, yes, Lord, here's a sword. And he said, that's enough. But they had a sword with them. You know, they use these justifications to try to account for being carnal. A man has a right to protect his family. And all of these things... When, yeah, you have a right to, don't allow anybody to hurt your wife. But we're not talking about situations of defending someone's honor. You have no honor. You're a dead person. You're alive to Christ. They use these kind of scriptures to distort the truth. Jesus allowed him to have a sword there for a purpose. He had to be numbered with the transgressors. There had to be something for people to say they did wrong. But Jesus fixed it. Peter sinned when he cut off this guy's ear. Do you realize that? And Jesus rebuked him, said, put your sword up, Caiaphas, Cephas, Kaipha, that's how they say it. Put, put your sword up. Everybody who draws the sword will die by it. If you want to live an aggressive, violent life, you'll die an aggressive, violent life. Were his intentions good? Sure. Just wrong. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. I've done the math on this before. I've told you all about it. Jesus is saying, it's not for a lack of ability to resist that I'm being arrested. It's not because I don't have enough power to overcome this situation that I'm yielding to it. I am willingly yielding to this for you. Because the lamb's got to be killed. And he knew it. He told them that. The 12 legions... Legions uh, on the lowest side are 2,000, and on the highest side, six, a legion. If you multiply out the 12 times the lowest numbers, the the 12 legions, and then keeping in mind that in uh, Isaiah, one angel killed 185,000 men. So you multiply the number of angels on the lowest estimate times the number 185, 185,000. We get well over 6 billion people that 12 legions of angels could kill. Now, 6 billion people is how many people are on the planet today? Back then, there were even less. Jesus is saying, don't you know that I have enough angelic power at my disposal to wipe out this whole planet? You know? He, he's, he's saying, don't, don't you know I, I've got whatever I need here? Peter, if I wanted to resist, you know, didn't you see me knock him down a minute ago? This to emphasize that he went willingly. At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. After you brought the lamb in your house, he was already in your house. He was yours to kill. Jesus entered their house willingly. He was there four days for him to inspect. He's not running away. They didn't find him on a ship headed for Tarsus. You know, he's not like Jonah. 
Not running from God's will. He's right there. He said, man, you had to come with clubs and swords. Hadn't I been with you every day? I'm not a flight risk. You don't have to set bail. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Then all of the disciples deserted him and fled. You feel like you've been let down before? I know I felt that way. We've let down other people too. We need to show mercy. Every one of Jesus' closest friends, every one of them, people he'd fed, people he'd taught about the kingdom, they all deserted him in his hour of need. Every one of them. And yet he restores every one of them, and every one of them go on to live live a fruitful life. Friends, whatever list of people you have in your life that you feel like have wronged you, that you feel like you have a reason to want to be distant from, get rid of it. Doesn't matter. Get rid of it. I'm preaching to myself here too. It's hard to do. Sometimes you have to throw it up. I'm ball it up, throw it away. You find it in your pocket again next week. And you ball it up and you throw it away. And you do that until it quits getting up. It's a fight. And you knock it down until it doesn't get up anymore. We cannot harbor unforgiveness. We say, well, I don't have unforgiveness. I just don't like them. Well, that's unforgiveness. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance. Kind of like the Pharisee who came Nicodemus at night. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Why didn't they know the outcome? Most of the time when you can't hear the will of God, it's because you have your own will in mind. When you can't hear that God's will for you is to do something, it's because you have something else in mind you want to do. The reason they had such a hard time hearing that Jesus was going to suffer and die, even though He said it many times, is because what they wanted Him to do was overthrow the Romans. So Peter's sitting there seeing what the outcome's going to be, even though Jesus has told him many times. Then the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Isn't it funny, the only thing they could agree on was that Jesus said that? And the very thing that they all testify against him and agree that he said, the only thing that they could say he literally said, was the very thing that typifies what he's fixing to do. God is pretty, pretty awesome, huh? The high priest, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer what... What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. That's because Isaiah 53 said he would remain silent. But notice something. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. When he invoked the Father, when he invoked as position of high priest a solemn oath, you must tell me, Jesus was obedient even to the wicked authority because he was in a position that was ordained by God. And he answered him, yes, it is as you say. He knew. He knew when he said that they would kill him for saying it. Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Why coming on the clouds of heaven? Because he said it in Matthew 24 to gather his elect. And Daniel said it, I think in Daniel 7, 7 or 9, somewhere right in there. And this described the Ancient of Days. It described him as God. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. That's why they said blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Yeah, the guy opens blind eyes. He heals ears that have been cut off. He raises the dead. Let's kill him. He's obviously a bad guy. Think about the reason that Christians are persecuted. Because you won't join in people's wickedness. You know, I, I told an employer one time, I said, I don't understand why you wouldn't want every employee to be a born-again, sold-out-on-fire Christian. They won't lie to you. They feel like it's their obligation to God to work hard for you. They'll pray for your business. They want you to prosper so that they'll prosper because the Bible says so. Why wouldn't you want that? And the truth is, they don't want Christians because they don't meet real Christians. They meet the kind that want to read the Bible on the clock, want to uh, live like hell all the way to heaven, the kind that are Christians when it's convenient. The kind that are Christians and say it's a matter of personal faith and you should accept Jesus, but at the first opportunity will tell the employer to screw themselves over money. You know? And get mean and nasty about it. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fist. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? I personally believe that that question is going to be answered one day. That prophecy is just a little delayed. There are going to be men that stand before Jesus. And he says, hey, you asked me to prophesy. Who hit me? It was you. Now Peter was sitting in the courtyard. And a servant girl came to him. You also were with this Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you are talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him, and he said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again, and with an oath. That's some of his fishermen talk. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. But the rooster, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Another gospel records Jesus looked right at him. Jesus knew he was. And we all focus on, on Judas. Or on, well, we do focus on Judas, but we focus on Peter denying him. Don't forget, all the apostles ran for their lives. We have to be those that... Love not our lives so much as to shrink from death. We need to be those that in the song and worship said, I don't mind to die. We have to be those that are willing to give our lives for the kingdom of God. So, well, that's kind of morbid. If you don't make up your mind in that setting, then what makes you think that you will ever be willing to suffer persecution of any kind for the kingdom? You'll always cling to that which is most precious to you. A man's going to protect what's most precious to him. Let there be a fire. And have you ever wondered, does my husband love me more than the kids? I don't know. But let there be a fire. See who, who gets pulled out first. Uh -huh. I, I know if I ask my wife, you know. Uh, hey, if, 
me and the kids were drowning. Uh, you know, who would you save first? You don't even really have to hesitate there. When a man's life is on the line, what's most precious to him is what he's going to protect. So when your life is on the line, it's a good indication whether Jesus has been first in your life or not. Because if you don't place the gospel first, then he wasn't really your Lord, was he? Something else was. And as much as they loved him, as much as they followed him, he did not yet hold the place in their life where he was their everything. And that's where we have to be. And they got there, and we have the same help to get there that they did. We know he's resurrected. We know he's conquered death. And he is in us. His spirit is in us, testifying to us, confirming to us. We're going to close there, and hopefully it will still fit on a CD. Here's the thing. Whether we're talking about the woman who gave up her very best once she realized what was happening and gave the pure nard to anoint Jesus for burial. Or we're talking about the kind of reaction from the Word that produces either that love or Judas' hate. Or whether we're talking about the certain man in a town that knew ahead of time, because you need to be that. Or we're talking about being pressed in an olive press so that the world can see what's in you and learn that you love the Father. Or we're talking about having to stand for Jesus when others deny Him. We must be the people of God. This week the world hailed Him as a king. And at the end of the week, He was only received by a few. John and a couple women were at the cross in love with Jesus still. All the others were hiding. Tail tucked between their legs for fear of the Jews. Even after He was risen. That's where you find them on the day of Pentecost, hiding for fear of the Jews. Waiting for the kingdom to be restored to Israel. Still not understanding this was not a military coup. Actually, they did understand, but they knew that the kingdom would be restored and they were waiting. Guys, we need to decide that regardless of the pressing, whether it's one weight, two weights, three weights, because each pressing was a greater weight to get what was left out of the olive. Regardless of the pressing, then no pulp's coming out of you. Nothing bad is coming out. Nothing but the pure anointing of God. Because as they increased the weights, the first one got pure olive oil because it was not that much weight. But then they added a weight. And the second one, the olive oil was a little impure because parts of the olive started to break up. Its flesh came out with it. By the time it was the third, it was mostly flesh and almost no anointing. No matter whether there's one, two, or three weights on you, you need to have pure olive oil coming out of you. Stand up. Let's pray. Wednesday. We will cover the crucifixion and the chronology of the crucifixion and what happened. Sunday will be a powerful resurrection message. Tell everybody that you come into contact with that seems appropriate. You know, everyone that you feel the Spirit and ask the Spirit, should I invite them? And then don't back down. I felt like I was supposed to pray with my boss this last week, and when it came time to do it, I got the knots in my stomach. All those, I could see she was kind of nervous, fidgety. Because uh, I told her I was coming to pray with her. And right then I said, oh, maybe I should do this another time. And the Lord said, no, you'll do it now. Make up your mind that you will not dig a hole and bury what God has given you. I don't say that just to have numbers in here. I want to see people's lives affected. That only happens one way. Let's pray.